the name of the series is Sent. Uh, we've been thinking about what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit as Jesus sent people into the world. The text that we're going to look at this morning comes from the very last book of the Bible, uh, Revelation, and we're going to look at chapter 5. So Revelation chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you are uh, welcome to use one of the Bibles in the Purex. And while you're getting situated with the passage, let me just give you a little bit of context for the book of Revelation because we need it. Revelation is a really intimidating and difficult book. Unfortunately, for that reason, sometimes we overlook the book of Revelation. We don't spend much time in Revelation because we don't know what to do with it. Now, we're only going to uh, be in this book for one week right now. Maybe if I'm brave, uh, at some point in the future, we will do some kind of series on the book of Revelation. But it's just a a one-week dive into Revelation, and I think even more so, we need some context to help us this morning. So Revelation is an unveiling, a disclosure of spiritual forces behind the scenes in history. Uh, Revelation is a, a series of visions that the Apostle John experienced. Now, John was, when he experienced these visions, he was exiled on the island of Patmos. Now, what do I mean that he was exiled? He was exiled, we get the hint uh, early on in chapter 1, uh, as a result of his testimony in Christ. In other words, he's been exiled to Pas- Patmos uh, because of the persecution that was taking place, because of his commitment and witness to Jesus. He has been exiled. God does not waste this opportunity. He uses this as an opportunity to reveal truth to John so that John might then encourage the church in the Roman Empire of the first century. And now the church needed encouragement because as I mentioned there was intense persecution happening at this time. So disciples of Jesus uh, individually are are wondering, how can I do this? How can I uh, testify to Jesus? How can I publicly live out my faith knowing that I might be persecuted as a result? And for the churches as a whole, the church collectively, they experience this tension themselves. And so John is wanting to encourage his brothers and sisters in the faith. Let me read for you uh, the verses that we're going to look at from chapter 5 this morning. Um, We're going to look at verses 1 through 14, which ends up being the whole chapter. Let me go ahead and read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray to Jesus now and ask for his spirit to help us. Jesus, you are present with us through your word. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray that you would challenge us. And we pray that you would compel us to worship you more fully, more deeply as a result of what we read here in this narrative. We pray, Jesus, that you would deepen our faith whether our faith is currently strong, weak, or somewhere in between. We pray in your name. Amen. Over the last couple of days, I started watching the Chernobyl series, um, which I'm sure many of you have already seen or you're currently watching it. In fact, last night, Jamie Cardi and I were texting back and forth about something else, and I just added that um, I was watching Chernobyl, and immediately he sent me a screenshot of him watching it. It was the most the exact same scene uh, in in season three. So maybe you were watching it as well last night. But uh, Chernobyl is intense, wow. And one of the reasons that it is especially intense, at least to me, is that it's based on true events. Immediately, you know, we're introduced to a dilemma, nuclear power plant disaster. And as a result, right away, we are confronted with what might the potential solutions be. And I mean, a lot of you are probably familiar with the true events anyway, but I won't go into detail. Um, But let's just say the solutions don't go well. The solutions offered, well, there really aren't solutions offered, um, but that's something else. But it is intense. It's high drama. And this is one of the reasons that we so easily get caught up into story and drama, isn't it? Whether it be the stories we watch or read or uh, true events, we all know what it's like, whether it be in the true events of life or the stories we read or watch, to be introduced to dilemmas regularly in life and then be confronted with what is the solution going to be? What are the solutions going to be? And here in Revelation 5, the Apostle John has a vision. Now, chapters 4 and 5 are part of one vision. And just for a little bit of of background um, for what happens in chapter 4 is that we get a a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. It's the throne room of heaven. And God is on the throne, 
And he's surrounding by all these elders, these living creatures. I forgot to mention before I read the text, this was supposed to be like a big thing to emphasize, but you know it already, even if it was just for me reading the text, that Revelation is really weird. Um, one of the reasons that it's so hard to understand and interpret is because it's so weird. It's so unusual. There's so much symbolism going on here. But in Revelation 4, we have God on the throne in the throne room of heaven, and the throne is surrounded by all the 24 elders, these living creatures, and what are they doing? They are praising God for his glory and his worth. And then we get to chapter 5. And we're going to work through this drama, thinking about the dilemma, the solution, and then the implications. And the dilemma that we are introduced to right off the bat is that John, the Apostle John, sees a scroll in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. This scroll contains God's purposes. It represents the unfolding of history. It represents God's plan of salvation and judgment. And we also learn that there is writing on both sides. The entire document is in God's hand. It is complete. It's comprehensive. So uh, uh, just imagine this with me as John is taking all of this in. In the right hand of him who sits on the throne is this scroll. And the scroll includes all of God's plan for history, all of his purposes. It's the unfolding of history. Now, that's the kind of information that I want, right? Like, we want access to that kind of content, that access to those kinds of details. And so John sees this in his vision. The dilemma is this. The scroll is what? It's sealed. Its contents are hidden. Well, that's frustrating, isn't it? Just following along in the drama, we're ready for maybe a grand reveal. We're excited about what this information is going to to uh, disclose, but we find out that the scroll is sealed. And think about this. The opening of the scroll not only would reveal God's purposes, but in the book of Revelation, it also sets into motion those purposes in history. Are are you following me? So it's not just simply about John wanting access to the the content. It's not just simply him wanting to see what is written in it. It's also the fact that without this scroll being unsealed, the events that are talked about within cannot be unleashed. They can't be set into motion. We have a dilemma. In verse 2, John sees an angel that he describes as mighty. What does the angel do or what does the angel say? The angel asks in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? So this is what this mighty angel is proclaiming in a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? In other words, who is worthy to set into motion God's plan and purposes for history? Is there, in fact, anyone who is worthy? Verse 3, we find the answer, at least initially. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. I want you to feel the emotion, the drama of this vision. Again, remember the context for the book of Revelation. John is experiencing these visions, and God's intention is for John to share these visions with the church. 
And praise be to God that that happened, and we are benefits of it even this morning as we're looking at the book of Revelation together. But he has brothers and sisters, including himself, brothers and sisters in the faith who are hurting. They're struggling. They're they're figuring out how to live as followers of Jesus in a culture that is hostile to them. And John himself, as we said, has been sent into exile on the island of Patmos. And so this isn't hypothetical for John. This isn't abstract. This is emotional for him. He wants to know the content of that scroll. He wants God's purposes and God's plan for history to be set into motion because he knows enough about the biblical story and about the person of God that God will protect his people, that God's promises are faithful and true, and that those who harm and do injustice will be held accountable. But without the scroll being opened, none of that can come to pass in history. And no one, again, verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. Deafening silence. Have you ever experienced this? Those points in your life where you need something. You need a voice. You need some kind of uh, revelation to you. You need encouragement. And all that you hear is nothing. Deafening silence. There is no person, no angel, no one who steps forward to open this scroll. Why? Because there is no one who is worthy. How does John respond? He begins to weep. Not just weep, but weep loudly, we're told. He weeps for himself. He's probably weeping for his brothers and sisters in the faith who are suffering and can't know God's purposes. Do you feel the emotion, the drama of this vision? Where do we go from here? Where does John go from here? What might the solution be? Verse 5. There's a voice that speaks up, and this voice speaks directly to John. Weep no more, the voice says. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Could you imagine the elation here, the relief, the burden that's lifted? You've reached the point where your understanding is that this scroll cannot be opened and history, in effect, is stuck. God's people are stuck. We have no vision of the future. We don't know where things are headed. And yet this, this voice speaks directly to John, weep no more. Brothers and sisters, in those moments of life, and maybe you're in one of those moments right now where you feel stuck, you feel discouraged, you need to hear God's voice, and all you're getting is silence. I want you to hear the good news of this text this morning, not coming from me, but coming from God himself, from his word, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, not will conquer, but has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. It turns out, doesn't it, there is someone who is actually worthy. Who is this? The lion of Judah represents strength 
and might and majesty. The root of David speaks of a king. And so putting these two together, we have this imagery, this symbolism of a powerful king, a majestic king, a powerful king who has conquered, who has prevailed, who has won. So what would you expect to see at this point? You've gone through these, this kind of emotional roller coaster, if you're John, and you've just heard this good news that there actually is someone who is worthy to open the scroll, and you have been informed that this is a powerful king type of, of, of character. What would you expect to see? John sees something unexpected. The transition from verse 5 to verse 6 is remarkable. I, I imagine, you know, who knows how long this, this took, but I, I imagine that John must have been searching the scene in this vision, right? Looking for someone or, or something that has been, just been described that would match up with a, a powerful king, right? What would you expect to see if you were in John's place? I'll tell you what, it's not what John ends up seeing. In verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, what does John see? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. What? This makes no sense. We've already been told about what we should be looking for, right? We've already been told, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, a powerful, majestic king. And then John looks and his focus, it, 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 he, he zooms in on what? A lamb looking as though it had been slain. This is the opposite of what we might expect to see. It's got to be the opposite of what John expected to see. What is going on here? Simply put, the lion is the lamb. The lion is the lamb. And this is a remarkable, powerful, profound truth of the Christian faith. The lion is the lamb. The lamb bears the mark of slaughter. And let's make no mistake about it. The early church reading this, the original audience, would have made the connections to the Old Testament, to the Passover lamb it would have been a, 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 that would have been slain for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement, they know what's going on here. They're being pointed to the cross, to the work of Jesus, his being slain on the cross. But notice this particular um, detail that we're given. The lamb is standing. A lamb looking as though it had been slain, but it's standing. Dead things don't stand, do they? Unless they're being propped up, and we're not told that... Jesus is being propped up here. The resurrection is what is in view here. We not only have the, the lamb who was slain, but the lamb is standing. And we've already learned that this one has conquered. This one has prevailed. This one has won. And it's done so through what? The cross and the resurrection. The lamb is a lamb with divine authority. Here's the deal. Jesus defies our expectations. Jesus defies our expectations because the lion is the lamb. And this isn't only in Revelation chapter 5. Reminded of, I was reminded of Philippians 2. 
this past week uh, as I was thinking of what's going on here in Revelation 5. And in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul writes this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, what is happening in in Revelation 5? It's exactly this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, remember that language, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus defies our expectations because the lion is the lamb. We expect the lion, or we at least long for the lion, don't we? As we're confronted with the dilemmas and the ultimate dilemma of life, the ultimate dilemma being we know that we are on the outside of something that we were made to be on the inside of, and the Christian story reveals the truth to us that it is access, relationship with God, that being our greatest dilemma, and then the dilemmas of life that um, come about as a result of living in a world um, that is fallen and broken and not the way it's meant to be. We long for the lion. I long for the lion. We long for the deity who will come in power and judgment and strength, and might, and glory. And don't, don't mistake me, all of those things we get with the God of the Bible, but Jesus defies our expectations because the lion is the lamb. Jesus comes with all of that glory, all of that power, all of that majesty, all of that ability, capacity to judge, but he comes also as the lamb who looks like it had been slain because it had been slain. Jesus is accessible to us. We're told that the next bit of details that we get from John, we're told um, that, I'll tell you once I find my place. All right, I found my place. Then I looked, that's not my place. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I started too late, guys. Verse 6, that's my place. I promise it's really my place. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, there we go, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Now, remember I said that Revelation is kind of weird. It's strange. We have all of this symbolism going on here. Seven, keep in mind, uh, in, in the Revelation of the Bible, represents completeness. It, it represents fullness. It represents perfection. Seven horns represents power and strength. It points to the ascension of Jesus. We looked at uh, early on the book of Acts when Jesus, um, right before Pentecost, which we remember today in the church calendar, Jesus ascends into heaven, but he also gives his followers 
his spirit, but he ascends into heaven to rule and to exercise his power and authority from heaven. Seven eyes, seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This lamb, this lion, is one who sees all things, knows all things, rules all things by his spirit. This points us to Pentecost. So in this vision, this vision, which is not that long, contains the Jesus story. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, including the sending of the Spirit by Jesus for his people. The lion is the lamb. Jesus defies our expectations. Dorothy Sayers was uh, an author, a writer, a poet uh, who wrote um, in the early 1900s into about um, mid, I think she passed away in like 1956 or 7. Uh, But she once said this, it's one of my favorite quotes by her. Let us in heaven's name drag out the divine drama from under the dreadful accumulation of slipshod thinking and trashy sentiment heaped upon it and set it on an open stage to startle the world into some sort of vigorous reaction. If the pious are the first to be shocked, so much the worse for the pious. Others will pass into the kingdom of heaven before them. If, we are, if all are offended because of Christ, let them be offended. But where is the sense of their being offended at something that is not Christ and nothing like him? We do him singularly little honor by watering down his personality till it could not offend a fly. Surely it is not the business of the church to adapt Christ to people, but to adapt people to Christ. It is the dogma that is the drama. Not beautiful phrases, nor comforting sentiments, nor vague aspirations to loving kindness and uplift, nor the promise of something nice after death, but the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world, lived in the world, and passed through the grave and gate of death, show that to the heathen and they may not believe it, but at least they may realize there is something that a person might be glad to believe. This is what we are being given in this vision in the book of Revelation. We are presented with this full, comprehensive vision of the person of Jesus. The lion is the lamb. We need Jesus to both be the lion and the lamb. We need his power. We need his majesty. We need his glory. We need him to be a God who holds those who commit injustices um, accountable. We need, we've talked about this before in other sermons, that judgment actually ultimately, in a real sense, is good news, especially for those who have been wronged and harmed again, harmed and, and wronged. But we need God to be more than just a powerful, majestic God. He is the one who was slain. And as I referred to earlier, this is powerful, it's profound, and it's unique to the Christian faith. That we have a God who came to us, and we have a God who took on human form and went to a cross to die for our sins on our behalf. Our sin is what interferes with our ability to have access and relationship with God. This is why in our assurance of forgiveness, what we read from Hebrews, we read about Jesus being the ultimate high priest who pays the price for our sins, who opens up the pathway to, to God and to relationship with God. And why is it that Jesus is the one who is worthy? Well, the dilemma really um, comes down to this. 
The problem of sin is humanity's problem, and humanity is accountable for it. Yet there is no human being that can provide the solution. But what makes the lion and the lamb, what makes Jesus unique, is that he's God, but he's also human. He's fully God, he's fully human. And so he's uniquely positioned. He's uniquely able to resolve the dilemma for us. Jesus alone is worthy. Jesus alone is worthy to open the scroll. And so as we enter into this drama of John's vision, I invite you this morning to worship Jesus, to worship Jesus, to recognize that Jesus alone is worthy to open the scroll. Jesus alone is the one who was able to conquer so that you might have life. Jesus defies our expectations. What are the implications of all of this? We know the outcome of history with the help of the book of Revelation. Revelation, Genesis and Revelation are the bookends of the Bible. And with the book of Revelation, we have a clear understanding of the direction of history. And what do we we know from the biblical story, from how Revelation ends? Jesus wins. Jesus has conquered that he will usher in his kingdom, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. He will restore all things to what they were meant to be. Imagine for the churches in the Roman Empire at this time, remembering what they were going through, their suffering, their persecution. John's visions provide them with hope. Hope is able to come flooding into their lives. It doesn't make everything better for them but it gives them a vision for the future that sustains them and allows them to live in the present. Uh, Katie, my my wife, is currently reading the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. And she shared with me a a quote, um, actually just this morning. I was sitting next to her uh, going over my my sermon, and she read this quote, and I said, can you read that to me one, one more time? And he said this at one point about his fellow slaves. They were indeed men and women of sorrow, acquainted with grief. Indeed, men and women of sorrow, acquainted with grief. Men and women of sorrow who are acquainted with grief, they need the lion to also be the lamb. And this is true for all of us, regardless of what we're going through in life. We desperately need for the lion to also be the lamb. In the person of Jesus, God is accessible to us. He identifies with us. And he, as John uh, put it in his vision, is the, the lamb who looked as though it had been slain. Jesus carries with him wounds. Jesus has suffered. And so in our suffering, we can be assured, we can have confidence that Jesus understands. He's not just simply a savior uh, in an abstract way. He's a savior in a real way, a practical way. He understands and he suffered in our place. What happens after all of this? This is where I started to read earlier. Verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, 
The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then in verses 11 through 14, we get more of the emphasis on the worship of Jesus in response to him being the lamb who was slain. There's a new song now that is being sung. It's at the heart of the kingdom of Jesus. And it's a song that all peoples join in on, peoples from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is the unique emphasis now in, uh, on the work of Jesus. And I, I love how in this song that is sung, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. For what purpose? For God to make them into a kingdom of priests and they shall reign on the earth. This is new, but it's not new. This is actually the vocation that God gave to humanity in the beginning of the Bible, to the first humans. He gave them dominion over the earth to care for it, to cultivate it for God's glory, to love it, to life. And now as we are moving toward the end of the biblical story, a new vocation hasn't been given to humanity. It's the same vocation but now it's not just a vocation given to, to the Hebrews in the book of Genesis. It's now a vocation given to people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The grand vision of the biblical story, God's grand vision, his heart is for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be a family, a kingdom of priests who help bring others into relationship with God and who care for God's creation in the way that he intended from the very beginning. A diversity of people, a multicultural family ruling over the earth on God's behalf for his glory. This is a, a vision of the future. This is where history is headed. And so as the church today, as followers of Jesus, we should ask, plead with God, to give us a, deep, a deeper desire, a deeper heart to see this vision more fully realized in the world, in the church. It's unbelievably sad that the church remains, particularly um, on the lines of race, um, as divided, if not more divided, than the world. And I, I want to invite you, like, we, we could come up with all kinds of solutions. Remember the dilemma, solution. We could come up with all kinds of possible solutions, but I just want to invite you as a church into prayer. This Friday, uh, the elders are going to be doing a day-long prayer retreat. I want to make you aware of that so that you um, can know to pray for us, but I want you to pray with us. And this is going to be a major theme that we commit to prayer that I'm going to be um, asking the elders to commit to prayer. That God would give us a deeper heart for this vision, a multicultural family, and that he would give us the faith and obedience to walk in his ways, to be used by him and however he sees fit to help bring it to fulfillment in ways that please him.
And so please uh, pray toward that end. There will be time for talking about solutions, ideas, and practices. Um, but I want to invite you into that uh, heart of prayer, that posture of prayer. And this is important to me because, one, I believe it's the vision that we're provided here in the biblical story. But it's also why I started this church in large part. Ten years ago, I, I planted City Church with core group of people. A few of you are still around. And my heart, our heart, was for this to be a multicultural family. And that has changed over the years. And so let's pray to God for him to do a work. Let's pray for God to do such a work in our church family that we might become the kind of place, the kind of display people, remember we talked about last week, who would look on and be provoked into faith in Jesus, be provoked into life in Jesus, because they see that there's something about Jesus that's able to uniquely unify people. This is a biblical vision. And we want to commit to it by faith and prayer. Before we wrap up, I want, you to, to, I want to point out how the very end of Revelation ends, last couple chapters. Chapter 21 in particular. John has yet another vision. And it's a vision of the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, when we read this, we read about this, we, I think, quickly probably think of a city with buildings, but what's ultimately being referred to here is the people, the people of God coming down out of heaven. Jesus is now, just before these verses, Jesus has said, I'm making all things new. He's making the earth new. And we're told that heaven comes down, um, the, the holy city Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God. And John says this, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The the biblical story is consistent from beginning to end. God's purposes do not change. From the very beginning, God's purpose, his intention, is that he would have a people who would rule over the earth on his behalf for his glory, that they might be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They help others know God. They're used by God to invite others into relationship with God. This is God's heart for us as his sent people. God's heart for us as his sent people that we might be a kingdom of priests and that we might be used by him to redeem the culture around us. And may we pray for God to add to our church family. May we pray for God to um, bring about a family that is more representative of this vision. We need each other. We need each other's perspectives. We need each other's gifts. We need each other's cultures because they enhance our experience and our view of God, but they also help us to be better stewards of creation, to care for what God has given us. And so may this vision of the future become a vision that compels us in the present. May it produce real and genuine faith and may it produce real and genuine fruit in our lives as a church family. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those portions of your word which are 
strange to us, harder to understand than other places in your word. That's why we, we, you have given us your spirit. So we pray that the spirit would take what we've read, take what we've learned, and produce fruit as a result in our lives. Uh, I pray for us as a church family that you would give us a deeper sense of our identity as your sent people. And Jesus, we pray that you would send us into the world, and we pray that you would add to our family. We pray that you would make us into a more multicultural family who reflects the beauty, diversity, and variety of your kingdom so that we might be better positioned to be kingdom of priests to our city and our region. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.